0: shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Be'ezer Sashem, we're going to be continuing with our series of shirim on the inner world of trauma. And tonight, what we're going to be speaking about is the relationship between trauma and language, and language and trauma. And the interrelationship really is going to go both ways. On the one hand, trauma is born out of language, and on the other hand, language is born out of trauma. And what we're going to see is an attempt to try and piece together a little bit of what our tzaddikim have taught us with regards to the role that language plays in our encounter with existence as human beings, what it means to be metamodeid with reality, to face reality as specifically linguistic creatures. The amount of writing, the amount of expression and development of ideas in Chassidus, in the words of the Vilnagon, the Ramchal, the Roshash, the Zayar Kadush, Chazal, Halacha, with regards to language and speech and the differentiation between types of speech are, are profoundly, profoundly well-expressed, well-developed systems of thought, which we are not going to get anywhere near the, the depth of the matter to tonight. But what we're going to try and talk about is Roshay Prakim, kind of the beginning ideas to give some sort of intimation into our tzaddikim's conception of language and the role that language plays in our development as human beings. First and foremost, what we have to consider and keep in mind is that for chazal, for our tzaddikim, language speaking is not something that we do. It is the essence of who we do language can be seen as one skill, one gesture of human experience amongst many. And if that is the case, then okay, I can have a number of elements in my life that are functioning well. And if language is not functioning well, then that's just a discrepancy in the realm of language. It doesn't affect every other place of a person's life. The second way of looking at things, which is the way that our tzaddikim teach us about language, is that language is not something that we do. Language is the framework through which we do everything. Now, language might be the language of thought. It might be the language of emotion. It might be the language of actual speaking. But either way you slice it, language is the bedrock and the framework against which all human experience is measured. And in that case, language is no longer simply a skill amongst others, but it is the background to all skills. And if there is a breakdown in language or a lack of development in language, so it's no longer going to be seen simply as a particular symptom that does not affect other symptoms, but it's going to be a fracture at the foundation of what it means to be a human being. We see this expressed explicitly and famously by Unculus. Unculus is famously the one who points out that a nefesh chaya, That vitality, that human vitality is actually Ruach Memala, is the capacity for human beings to speak. That speech, and according to Sunt Okula, Sager, and his understanding of the human condition in the lens of the Torah, is that man is a speaking creature. That language is the mark of our identity, it is the distinguishing factor between us and the rest of unredeemed nature that we see ourselves above and beyond from. Language is our capacity to identify, to name, to measure, to categorize that which we encounter in this world we experience. Born into, or really thrown into a world of chaos, thrown into a world of objects and different things, a human being can struggle and really drown underneath the particulars and the multiplicity of things and moments and ideas that run through the gamut of our experience. Language is the gift given by HaKadosh Baruch Hu to give us the ability to make order out of the chaos. Adam Harishon is born as a speaking creature and his first job as a human being was the necessity of naming to identify the objective reality of things and to create subjective titles, subjective gestures, names, categorizations through language that would give me the capacity to now identify those objects. The process of naming, the process of identification, is something that settles us in the face of the chaos. Chaos is nameless. Much like anxiety, it is a nameless thing that swells and bustles with its intensity, and it makes no mind of the differentiations and the boundaries that we as human beings so desperately need in order to function. We are vulnerable creatures, we are dependent creatures, and in the face of the swell of the infinite possibilities of all things at any given moment, a human being would drown in the overwhelmingness of it all. So the gift of naming, the capacity for Adam Harishon to name things, was the ability to place things in an organized way. Rabbi Nachman describes in the 64th teaching of Lukut which we're going to be making recourse to tonight, that language is actually the edge of all things. By naming something, by identifying the language through which I will encounter that thing, I am giving that thing shape. Prior to the linguistic categorization of applying words and definitions to that thing, that thing on a certain level feels infinite. By naming it, I gain a sort of control over it. Naming is also domesticating the intense power of something. And I walk around with this sense of confidence that my language, my linguistic capacity, the order of things in which I arrange what is real, what is not real, what is reality, what is not reality, I gain a certain power and control over reality. The language that we use or the language that Adam Harishon had was the capacity to orient oneself to the overwhelming content of experience and to create healthy functional containers that made room for the content of experience. Very simply, we see this f- lived out regularly when we watch the weather report. This is something that I think about from time to time. Human beings are overwhelmed by the brute force of nature. Because the brute force of nature and the uncontrollable force through which Mother Nature reigns her power in this world would be so profoundly anxiety producing for human beings to fathom because all of our building and all of our progress and all of our development would need to be done and perpetuated in the shadow of the possibility that things beyond my control can very quickly tear this asunder. A hurricane can arrive, weather events can arrive and destroy all things. So what human beings tend to do is instead of anticipating the nameless, frightening, powerful brute force of nature, we name it. We give names to the hurricane. We apply proper nouns to the hurricane. So instead of being afraid of this existential invisibility of the possibility of things falling apart, we're afraid of George or we're afraid of Tim. It's a domesticated experience of human beings naming things because we're too overwhelmed by the possibility of living in that nameless space of that which we're afraid of. So language is a tool that allows us to minimize the intensity of reality and to begin to rest assuredly in our human categorizations and the orders of things that we place on things. That is one function of language. Another function of language is that it allows us to bridge the gap separating me from another person, me from a group of other people. Language as the great connector, as the connectivity, as the gesher and the kesher, as Rav Putner would point out, the bridge, the connecting bridge between my howling solitude and the howling solitude of the other, or the birthplace of community and relationship, is experienced through language. Language allows me to take the unformed experiences of my inner psychic being, the way I relate to things, to people, to ideas, the way I feel internally. And it is what allows me to take that inner content and express it externally in a thematizable and understandable, intelligible way so that I can be understood by another person. So language, aside from being the thing that helps human beings develop a sense of individual sustained personality by naming things and measuring things, it is also the birthplace of community, it is also the birthplace of interconnectivity and inter between me and another person. So, Language serves a profoundly significant and fundamental role in an individual's life. It is what allows me to gain control over the uncontrollable reality of life. And it is also what helps me move out of my isolation and connect with another person. Now, when there is a trauma, when reality overwhelms the capacity of my mind to make room for it, when the categorizations and the compartments that I have so sturdily worked on in life are overwhelmed by the content where there's an overflow because that is what trauma is. Trauma is when there is an excess of content that shatters the container like we spoke about, the shvira sakelim. We all have kalim, we all have vessels and compartments in which we measure existence, in which we sort our experiences, make room for them, make them intelligible in our personal narrative system. And as long as things don't overwhelm my containment capacity, so everything finds a very neat place in my mind Mind, it gets stored in the place that it needs to get stored, and everything is beside there. I'm able to go to sleep well and I'm able to wake up comfortably. But when there is an event, when there is an experience, whether capital or lowercase t, as we've discussed, all with all of the prerequisite definitions of the subjective nature of trauma, when there is an event in which the content the experience, the meaning, the feeling, the end result of this event is so overwhelming and so unbearable to me that the content, the container, the calum of my experience cannot hold it, it shatters. The vessels shatter and there is a disruption between the equal flow of content and container. When that happens, my language stutters. I am no longer able to identify thematically or intelligibly exactly what it is that is happening. I no longer have the verbal tools. I don't have the linguistic toolbox. My dictionary, my personal dictionary, which I allow to be the birth of my personal diction, the way that I convey myself in this world through language, no longer has the words strong enough to define what it is that has taken place, what it is that the feeling I'm experiencing is, and it falls into a state of silence when I am no longer able to communicate to another person what it is that has happened to me, what it is that I'm feeling, there's a perpetuation of that traumatized feeling because there's a two-step breakdown in language in the face of a trauma. First and foremost, the trauma disrupts our capacity to name and identify what it is that is happening to us. And the event is so overwhelming that I can no longer be present in it in a way that I can manage it and place it firmly in my mind. It's a splinter that rests outside of the system. It's an unwanted piece of information that is trying to be processed over and over, yet it can't be accepted because it's too overwhelming. So it's the splinter or this resistance within the mind to identifying it and making it something manageable. And in the breakdown of that, I can no longer communicate the experience to another person. So the two-step breakdown of language is that in the face of the overwhelming content of the trauma, whether it be capital T or lowercase T, something overwhelms me. I can no longer identify it or make room for it as something real. And I also can't communicate it. So I'm feeling alone with the problem, a problem that I can't even necessarily give words to. A problem that emerges in an emotional way or it forces us into places of anger or despondency or overwhelmingness. And not only that, but to add insult into injury in the greatest expression of the term, I can't even share the burden with another person because I have lost that bridge that allows me to bridge my experience with another person's experience. And in the breakdown of language, a person is left saturating in that traumatic feeling, left saturating and and sitting and stewing and marinating in that experience, left with the confusion, with the bilbul, with the babbling, with the no longer having language. The mind is still attempting to name it. The mind is utilizing all available categorizations of linguistic shapes and language barriers and the order of things to make room or to find a compartment for this experience, but it continues to fail, so this inner process that's going on in the individual is an attempt to name it, an attempt to categorize it, an attempt to communicate it, yet a breakdown of naming it, a breakdown of being able to categorize it, and a falling into silence. This is what our tzaddikim described as what took place by Mitzrayim when the Jewish people descended into a place referred to as Golis Hadibor, an exile of speech. The Jewish people were so overwhelmed by the events, the national traumas, the individualized traumas that they had been going through that they were incapable of expressing it, identifying it, and expressing it to another person. And in the exile of speech, the Jewish people fell sway to all sorts of external enslavements, to all sorts of external distractions, no longer able to identify what it is that I need desperately and what I want, no longer able to uncover that precise word, but falling into the clouds of silence where I'm no longer able to communicate what it is that's bothering me, to even think of getting help. That's what it means when Chazal tell us that Mitzrayim was such a thickened state of exile that it didn't need guards to prevent the person from running away. Nobody was able to run away because we were all caught up in our own Mitzrayim. We were all caught up in our own exilic state where we can no longer even communicate to ourselves what it is that was bothering us. We couldn't name the enemy. And if we can't name the enemy, I can't communicate the enemy. And if I can't communicate it, I can find no help. And this Gullah Adibor, this death of language, this descent into the exile of speech creates a claustrophobic existence. It creates an inner state of warring tensions and an immense amount of information I know about this experience. I know about the overwhelming nature of reality, the powerlessness of reality, the brokenness of reality, the shattered nature of reality, the Kalim of reality, as we spoke about last week, but I can't communicate it. And therefore I don't have the ability to find the comfort in speech. When Freud was discussing the process of the therapeutic model, first and foremost, it was seen as a talking cure because talking and speaking was ultimately identifiable with an experience of catharsis. Catharsis is that feeling that a person has when they inhale to breathe for a little bit longer than they're comfortable with. And then a person begins to feel that pent up claustrophobic tension in the chest area. And instead of exhaling in that desperate attempt to regain the equilibrium of comfort, a person allows their breath to be held even deeper and the tension builds. At the moment of exhalation, that moment, that transition point, that liminal space where the tension and the claustrophobia of the chest gives birth to the expanses, the merchavim, the merchavim of breathing out and expressing that which was internal externally, that moment of relief, that moment of exhalation is what is referred to as the cathartic experience, an expression of intensified energy that exists within a tightened space. And so it was never really about the arrogance or the interpretation of the therapist, as much as it was about giving the individual a safe space to speak. Because given the ability to speak, an individual can experience the, the statement of David Malka of nafshi yadze bediburo, that when I speak, my soul moves outwards, I find expansivity. And the opposite is true as well. When I fall into a state of speechlessness, when I fall into a state of mumbling or groaning, then I find myself caught up in the confines and the constraints of my experience. That's when I find myself in dire straits. That's when I find myself in a place of elameless, of meaninglessness, of of elame, of not being able to express myself, of being mute. Because the, the human being never stops trying to express itself. Our mind never stops trying to make linguistic categorizations of our experience. We're always trying to verbalize ourselves. And hopefully when we're healthy enough, we're able to verbalize ourselves linguistically through direct speech. But when speech is in exile, when speech is broken down, so we find ourselves struggling to express ourselves differently. Now, there might be secondary modes of expression, writing, things like that, journaling. But if a person is not trained well enough or a person doesn't have enough support, the way that we begin expressing ourselves is through behaviors, is through resistance, is through passive aggression, is through destructive behavior, self-destruction. Because when a person feels that their world has closed off and been atomized into this monadic experience of being caught within the self, no longer able to express myself linguistically to another person, I'm going to struggle towards the end of my life with every ounce of my power to find a way to express that tension that's building up in me. And if it's a substance, then it's a substance. And if it's a self-destructive behavior, then it's a self-destructive behavior. But make no mistake about it, the death of language, the breakdown of language is the origin of so many of the maladaptive processes that we go through in trying to express ourselves and to find comfort. I had once wanted to say that we know the deep correlation between traumatic experiences and addiction. Now, it happens to be that in the field that I've been working in, when a person came into my room or a person came into my office with an addiction, let's say it was an addiction to the hardest type of substance imaginable. So my first question in the line of Freudian analysis was to put on my archaeologist's hat and to go digging like an archeologist to find where the body was buried. Because if a person has an X substance problem, that means that they have an excise trauma that gave birth to that substance problem. But nowadays, after having worked in that field for about nine years, I no longer have to ask a person where the trauma was. If they're breathing and they're walking in my office, that's enough of a reason for them to have an identifiable trauma. That being human is traumatic enough. Being a human being, being a sensitive human being who feels that they can't fully express themselves externally, so that's enough of a reason for a person to try and find alternative methods of expressing themselves. Addiction, the word addiction, etymologically speaking, one can look at this word as follows. Diction is the sum total of our linguistic capacity, like a dictionary that contains the sum total of our language. So when I have a healthy form of diction, I am able to convey the inside of my experience externally. I'm able to say what's hurting me, I'm able to say what the problematic feeling is, what the overwhelming issue is, what that trauma was. But when there's a breakdown of language and I descend into that metzar hagaron, into that narrowed space of the throat, which is where paro and the sarah uifim and the sarah stand, as the Arizal tell us, that place of constriction, that place where language can no longer express itself properly. And instead of words that are coming out, we find ourselves babbling, trying to convey a coherent sentence, but not able to. In that place, it's the death of language that is placing an A before the word diction. It is the negation of diction, is the negation of our capacity to speak. And that is the birthplace of addiction because the word addiction etymologically speaking can be seen as the A as the negation of diction. So addiction is born. Our post-traumatic response is born specifically in the breakdown of our language. Now, again, like we've spoken about The subjective nature of trauma is also going to be the subjective nature of post-traumatic response, so each and every person is going to relate to language differently. We see Moshe Rabbeinu, who was a sensitive individual. And the more sensitive a person is, the more spiritually aligned the person is, the more viscerally they're going to feel the lowercase t traumas of their lives. Because the moment that there's the emergence of pain, the moment that there's the emergence of disorder, at that point, I'm going to be overwhelmed. Because as a sensitive neshama, I'm aware of the fact that I should have my way. I should get what I want. As a chelak eloikai as a creature that is endowed with a divine spark within myself, There's no reason that I shouldn't have everything I want. And Chazal understood this. Chazal told us that the basic requirement to identify oneself as a traumatized individual, as someone who experiences suffering, is if I put my hand in my pocket expecting a dollar and I find 99 cents, that's the tachlis of Yusurin. And the more sensitive a person is, the less needed in order for them to suffer, in order to say, I'm a suffering person, why should it be this way? And the more sensitive a person is, the more delicate their relationship with language is going to be. And this is what we see by Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, we're told, was kaved peh. Moshe Rabbeinu did not have the capacity to speak. The Maharal tells us that the nature of Moshe Rabbeinu's kaveir sapeh, the inability for Moshe to properly convey, linguistically speaking, what was going on internally, was due to his lofty spiritual power. That there was an incongruous relationship between the inner experience of Moshe Rabbeinu and the external reality of Moshe Rabbeinu's world. That for example, Moshe Rabbeinu's existence on a certain level was traumatic because he was a neshama of such a lofty level that speech was no longer a possibility for him. The higher a soul is, the more delicate its language is going to be. And the more difficult it is going to be to be able to convey myself, linguistically speaking, when things go wrong. The Maharal compares this to the Gemara that tells us that prior to the emergence into this world, the child exists in the womb, in that oceanic state of the mother's womb, and it knows all things. It has words, it has a language that can describe every element of the Torah. But the moment that that child is born into the world, it forgets all of the Torah that it had previously learned. And how does it forget the Torah that it had previously learned? So Chazal tell us that the Malach hits the child on the mouth, and that's what causes the forgetfulness. And what the Maharal says, very in line with what he describes with regards to Moshe Abenu's inability to speak, is that being born into this world is traumatic enough for some people. It's the Shira ra it's the shattering that has already always happened. Uh, it's shattering that builds, but nevertheless, it's the shattering that has always happened. And therefore, if I'm a sensitive individual, my birth into this world is going to be the breakdown of speech. I'm going to spend my entire life babbling. I'm going to spend my entire life trying to find that perfect word. And unable to find that perfect word, I'm going to become frustrated at my inability to identify what it is that I need to identify and to communicate what it is that I would like to communicate And at that point, the person falls into a state of dumya. At that point, the person falls into a state of silence, of existential silence and isolation of the self in relationship to the traumatic core of reality. In describing the vacant space and describing the paradoxical difficult space, that traumatic underpinning of reality, Rabbi Nachman describes what takes place in our relationship with speech. And he says as follows. That there are certain times where a person is going to find themselves and this is in the 64th teaching of Lakuta Maharan. There are going to come times where a person finds themselves in some sort of confounding and confusing scenario with all sorts of difficulties and forms of denial that emerge from the vacant space, the emptiness that exists at the core of reality. Now that emptiness as we're going to see is obviously saturated with the light of God but nevertheless when a trauma takes place what we encounter is the emergence of that emptiness and that is is the aspect of shtika, that is the aspect of silence, because there's no answer to these questions, and if there's no answers to these questions, then there's no letters to answer these questions. And I find myself in a place of silence at that point, that when a person looks at this world, when a person encounters this world and all of its difficulties sometimes, sometimes the only way to respond is with silence. Once we fall into the death of language, Once we find ourselves in the pile of shattered letters that have broken apart through the traumatic experience, breaking the words of reality, the language that HaKadosh Baruch used to create reality, those words fall apart, the trauma takes place, the Shriya Sakelem takes place, things fall apart and the scattered letters form what we know of as reality. And we're babbling, we're trying to communicate with one another, but again, the Tower of Bavel, all of those traumatic experiences prevent us from finding the right word. And instead of fighting the breakdown of language, Instead of attacking the breakdown of language and trying to speak and mumbling and stuttering and being magam game and trying to say the same thing over and over without being able to find the proper tools of expression. Chazal give us a hint as to how to fall into the death of language and to find redemption of language as well. Because when we fall into that pit of that halal hapanui, what we encounter there is shtika, what we encounter is silence. And at the beginning it's an existential silence. It's a silence of I'm trying so desperately to say something, but I have nothing to say. I'm screaming and I'm not being heard. I'm talking without speaking. Uh, no one is understanding me. I can't even understand myself and all of the confounding and confusing experiences of what it means to be a post-traumatized individual. Chazal teach us that instead of fighting that, allow yourself to sit in the silence. Allow yourself to sit in that place where you no longer have language to answer things. Because when a person falls into that place beyond language, when a person falls into that place of the shattered letters of our expression, where we're no longer able to convey things the way we want to. The Sefer Yetzirah describes letters as avanim and words as batim. Language is to live in a sturdy home. But when that home gets destroyed and when it breaks apart and shatters into a million pieces, instead of trying to babble and to speak and to fill the world with our milui and to fill the world with our language, even though our language is not hitting the mark, what Chazal, in line with what Rabbi Nachman is teaching us right now in the names of Chazal, is the ability to sit with silence. Because yes, silence is the death of language, but silence is also the birthplace of the redemption of language. Because once we come to a point to realize that the previous language that we had, which organized and identified and communicated reality the way that we needed to, once that language has been shattered, once we have been disillusioned to the illusion of omnipotence in this world, the only way forward is to dig down deep into a second form of maturity, to realize that, yes, language may have broken, but that doesn't mean that I cannot uncover the redemptive capacity of a language that is born in the shattered vessels and the shattered letters of a previously dead language, that yes, our original language of expressing ourselves to ourselves as well as to another person may have broke down as a result of that overwhelming traumatic experience where the content outweighed the container, causing it to shatter and create a scattering, In that wreckage, in the breakdown of the words and the sentences and the paragraphs that we trusted so securely, what we begin to do is to look at the individual letters again. We begin to pick up the small pieces of what it means to speak, and we begin to respect our language again. And the birthplace of that respect for the second form of language, that post-traumatic language that we need to cultivate for ourselves to give vessels to our experience is going to be silence that shtika, to sit with it, to not try and linguistically identify it, to sit with a friend, to sit with someone, even when we can't convey what we want to convey, to sit in that dumya, to sit in that silence. And in the beginning, that silence feels painful. That silence is a post-traumatic response, like we see by Aharon Akohen, that after Nod who Avihu died tragically and suddenly, it's Vayidom Aharon, and Aharon dies in the sense of language, Aaron becomes an inanimate object, the domain that can't speak, that post-traumatic silence. But we also find that Davra Melech encounters that same type of silence, but transforms that silence of va'idom Aharon into l'cha dumya tahila, that silence is praised to you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That when I'm silent with you in my heart, when I'm silent with the grand orientation of reality, which is my relationship with HaKadosh Baruch at the core of my existence, at the core of my experience, at that point, I have the capacity of uncovering the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the silence itself. We find by the Tanaim that when they were confronted with questions, it says, Shatak Rav, Rav was silent. And the tzaddikim of Chabad, the Middle Rebbe, points out that don't think for a second that that shtika was not having anything to speak. It was having too much to say, but willing to be silent with it, willing to sit with that reality. Rabbi Nachman explains as follows. He says that when a person finds themselves in those vacant spaces where language no longer works, where content of reality overwhelms the container of the self, in sham sham dibor there's no language there fa fil sehal bla there's not even the ability to think without letters al kanhamuho saba em sham u bikhin Therefore, the difficulty and the traumas and the confusion that comes from there is in the secret of silence. Like we find by Moshe Rabbeinu, what happens with Moshe Rabbeinu? He encounters the death of Rabbi Akiva. He sees the trauma. He sees Rabbi Akiva being destroyed. And he says, Zu Torah Is this the Torah and its reward? In his traumatic attempt to understand something? Is this the Torah and is this his reward? He They responded to him, Shtoik, Be silent. Be silent. Kach Allah bin machshava. This is how it arose in my will. The way through this problem is through your silence itself. Rabbi Nachman explains elsewhere as well that the way through the problem is by elevating oneself above speech into a place of the silence of thought and my ability to sit in the silence, my ability to sit there and to slowly but surely build myself back up to understand the post-traumatic language that is going to help me. Rabbi Nachman continues, In a different teaching, in the 12th teaching in the second volume of Lukuta Aran, and he makes reference to this void of silence that a person finds themselves in after the trauma when language is no longer strong enough to compartmentalize and make compartments for reality. And Rabbi Nachman describes how we fall our, into that place of silence. But here, Rabbi Nachman gives a different expression to that silence, because in truth, the expression of the silence is not simply silent, but it's the expression of "Aye, where are you, Rabbi Rosh Hashanah, ayei Kavodcha, where is the place of your glory. When a person finds themselves in those spaces of concealment, when a person finds themselves in those spaces of being stuck, in those spaces of difficulty, of pockets of of harsh energy or traumatized experiences, our natural expression is to scream out, And it begins as a silent cry. It begins as a wordless cry. But in truth, slowly but surely, it begins to be a cry that the cry itself is the uncovering of the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu with me in that broken place. Because as we know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu also created the world through language. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world that was created through language shatters through language. As the Sha'ar Yichud V'amun of the Balatanya tells us that Chamesha Motsau S'apeh, the ability to limit and constrict reality with language, is the Tsimtzum, is the constriction that HaKadosh Baruch Hu utilized to create the world. And when we find ourselves in any place in reality, each place in our lives is sustained, is given its meaning by a verb, an expression of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But what about those places that are devoid of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? What about those pockets of trauma? What about the halal ha What about those empty spaces in our lives? Where does the sustenance come from? bin binachman, it comes from the maimr sasim. It comes from the concealed utterance. That concealed utterance of, ayyeh mekoim k'voitcha. In my silence, when I sit in the broke-down vestiges of language that allowed me to communicate my experience, when I cry out internally and inaudibly, ayyeh mekoim k'voitcha, what I'm already pointing out to myself is that in this place of absence from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, my crying out for the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the very mechanism that will bring about the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and reveal that he has always been there with me that even in the breakdown of language, language can never be so broken that I can't speak to HaKadosh Baruch Hu because l'chad dumya Tehila, HaKadosh Baruch Hu hears my silence. HaKadosh Baruch Hu hears my inability to express. A therapist hears the inability to express words. A good friend hears the ability to, to sit there in silence and make room for that person to try and find new permutations, new tsirufim, new linguistic categorizations to convey my life. To convey my experience. This process of the death of language descending into the pits of silence and moving from that silence into that post-traumatic language of where every single word that I say in truth conveys my singular search for HaKadosh Baruch in my life. The Baal Shem Tov in the 28th teaching in Keser Shemtov explains this based on the statement that we have in the mice of the Merkava of Yecheskel, which we're going to lay in on Shavuos, as chashmal. Chashmal, which is a luminescent light that hovers around experience, giving shape and meaning to experience, is made up of two words. Chashmal, chash means silence, and mal means language. Chash, again, itim chashot, times for silence, and itim Malelot and times for speaking. But the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh explains as follows, that in truth, this two-part word is three stages. There's chash, there's the initial descent into silence, the loss of language the sounds of silence where I no longer have language to convey to myself what it is that I'm trying to convey, no longer capable of communicating across the the stuckness in myself, across the vistas to another individual. That's the state of chashut, that's the state of silence of trauma. And then mal is going to take place twice. The first stage of mal, very similar to the experience of mila, is cutting away the negative, is getting rid of the excess, clarifying which words are necessary and which words are no longer necessary. What is the vehicle of language that I will be able to utilize in my life from here on out after my naivete has been shattered? So there's the moments of silence, then there's the cutting away of the excessive language, no longer trying to say the exact word because I know there's no word that can possibly be strong enough to convey what it is I'm trying to convey about my inner experience. And once I cut away the excess and get rid of the, of the insignificant, inessential language, then I come to the second stage of mal, which is speaking. Then I can open my mouth again. And in this post-traumatic language, a language that makes room for the silence, what we experience is first and foremost, we find ourselves in silence. Then we find ourselves cutting away and identifying exactly what it is that we want to uncover for ourselves in terms of our linguistic vehicles of expression. And then we're able to open our mouths with a precise word. And that precise word, that precision of language and that humility of language, is the post-traumatic language that builds us back up again, that allows us to see the shattered piles of letters and to reorient them and make sirufim kadashim and to put the pieces back together after the fall. And to rebuild those kalim and to put those letters back together into words and those words into sentences and those sentences into paragraphs and those paragraphs into songs and expression as Rav describes of rebuilding language out of the very shattering of language itself, of taking the breakdown of language to give birth to a new form of language, a language that makes room for Trump, a language as Rav describes in his Ma'amarem on Pesach, that is no longer arrogant in its thought of saying the exact word. It comes to the existence of the fact that I can't say the exact word. There's no capacity for me to say the exact word because only a Baruch has exactitude. Only a Baruch has perfection. The rest of it is an attempt to convey with my own language, through my own experience, what it is that I've gone through, and what it is that I'm going through, and what it is that I'm trying to get to. And when I'm able to recreate that language and that humility of language, I can uncover the desire inherent in language. I can uncover the light of language, not as a means to an end, but a means and an end in and of itself. By speaking, I fill the world. Language is described as milui, it's described as mamalel it's described as filling that vacant space, that the words that I use create my reality. I can only uncover that type of language after my first form of encounter with language has broken down. Only the neshamos of Moshe Rabbeinu, only those neshamos who find themselves in this world devoid of language, no longer able to express the exact word that they want to express, Cursed by being misunderstood, each way in whatever way each person feels that they're misunderstood, a person is capable then of uncovering the redemptive residual lights of language from within the breakdown of language, which becomes our private language, our language with Hakadosh Baruch Hu, That gives birth to hispoitedus, talking to Hakadosh Baruch Hu in our own language. Rabbi Nachman stressed over and over that it has to be in your own language. I don't speak because I. Believe it. I believe it because I speak it. My language becomes the formation of my reality. And it's because I have held on to the promise of language. The Torah gives me language. HaKadosh gives me language. And when I'm able to transform that broken-down language, that mumbling and bumbling and kind of the, the stuttering of trying to say something over and over, saying it in the wrong way, missing the point, that miscommunication, I grow up into that ability to accept the fact that I'm not necessarily going to have the perfect word to say. I'm not necessarily going to have the linguistic strength to describe my experience, but I can transform language into the site of prayer, into the site of yearning, into the site of expression, into the site of connectivity and the and love at the heart of language. In the tale of the seven beggars, the 13th tale of, of Sipori Maesios, the third beggar that visits the lost children after their trauma, after the breakdown in the forest, is the beggar who stutters, the beggar who cannot speak properly. First there was the blind beggar, then there was the deaf beggar, then there was the stuttering beggar with Kveda who was no longer able to speak properly, just like Moshe Rabbeinu. And at the Shevah Brachos, when it's revealed that the post-traumatic growth that takes place out of the trauma is sevenfold in the experience of the trauma itself, we find that the blind beggar says, "You thought I was blind. You thought I couldn't see. I'm not blind. I can see better than anyone. The world is just too old for me to pay attention to it." And the deaf beggar comes along and he says, "You think I'm deaf. You think I can't hear. I'm not deaf. It's just that the sighs and the complaining of this world that emerge from Chisaron and Lack are too bothersome to me, and I don't want to hear." anything. And the third beggar, the beggar with Kveda D'Sapeh says, you think I can't speak? I can speak better than anybody else. I speak words of love and songs of love that are so powerful that they shake the world to their core. And there, Rabbi Nachman goes into the beautiful story, the proof of this third beggar's capacity of speech as that undying love story between the heart of the world and the brook that exists on top of the mountain at the other end of the world. And there is this ultimate desire for these two elements to unify themselves with one another, that the brook of the world yearns for the heart of the world and the heart of the world yearns for the brook of the world. But in the end of the day, they know that the moment that they try and see one another in actuality, they lose sight of each other and they can't live by losing sight of each other. So they have to remain at a distance, which means that their relationship, the consummation of the relationship is not through proximity, but rather by way of distance, that language's full expression is the potency and the desire at the heart of language as expressed in Shir Hashirim, as expressed when language is pushed to its limits in the writings of the Zohar and the Arizal and in poetry and in music and in tefillah, in Pismonim and Piyutim and our own personal tfilos. Language is not meant to be a perfect instrument. It is supposed to allow us to live with our imperfections, to live with the desire. And in the post-traumatic breakdown of what we perceive to be a perfect language that is no longer perfect, we uncover the second ridiculous redemptive possibility of an imperfect language that teaches me that at best I can say what it feels like to me, but I can never express the word itself because the only contact that I have with the Kaddish Baruch Barhu is ultimately in the silence of my own mind, asra Sashem.